Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. As much as folks love to say, I want the government out of my health care, I just literally crack up every time I hear that because we already do have a single payer in America, and that's Medicare. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, John Gorman, founder of the Gorman Health Group, member of the Board of Directors of Henry Ford Health Systems Health Alliance Plan, and the chairman at Nightingale Partners, which, to paraphrase, makes things suck a whole lot less for underserved and economically disadvantaged communities by focusing on racial disparities in healthcare. And that's the gist of today's show. He's got 30 years of experience in public service. He's given so much to our country, and he's got a genuinely unique perch on which to sit atop. And his advocacy efforts have spawned almost a dozen entrepreneurial ventures in government health programs that actually help people. What a novel idea. Note of caution to our listeners. John has very strong opinions, and this episode does touch on some very pointed and timely political issues, maybe with a sprinkling of COVID thrown in there for shits and giggles. So buckle up, gird your loins, you have been warned, enjoy the show. John, thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. It's a real honor uh, to get to know you and, and to see your storied career as a public servant. And you're, you know, must have a credible perspective on everything you've witnessed over the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I wanted to start out with an intentional softball question, which may have an intentional hardball answer, if you would. Please. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. One of your quotes, I think it's on LinkedIn or your website, it's like you have strong opinions, which is good, and you rely on evidence. What's that like to rely on evidence? You mean these days when there's a war on science going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, I rely on evidence is generally my, my blanket defense for Trumpists and everybody else that uh, is you know, following the president's line right off the uh, the cliff like a bunch of lemmings that uh, that just don't want to believe in science and that you know we can have evidence-based interventions for just about any sort of healthcare condition especially covid-19 and uh, you know they're all choosing to ignore it I think that's a fair answer. That's a little bit of political <laughs> shade there in my profile. <laughs> no, and, and well-deserved. I mean, I've, I've always worked in this. I'm not a scientist, of course, but I'm a very logical person, I'd like to believe. And, you know, you really want to be conservative and identify risk. And, I, you know, Fauci was really phenomenal. I forget which, which uh, show he was just on. But he talked about how it's okay for science to acknowledge it makes mistakes because they don't have the evidence to back up the data. They make suppositions based on risk. 
that's a lot of syllables. That's a lot of intellect. But at the end of the day, that is a phenomenal way to just ensure that you're ideally doing things as best as possible. Absolutely. And it's not lost on me that just this morning, Trump's chief of communications, Dan Scavino, posted a disgusting cartoon on Facebook uh, equating Dr. Fauci with a faucet of false information. Yeah, this so there is America. In a nutshell, Hashtag this is 2020. America in 2020. Yeah, exactly. So I want to get started with a couple of one-on-ones, because again, you have an incredible history in the background working for the government, and you were working for CMS before it was CMS, which is Medicaid Services, you know, in the 90s. Can you give us a one-on-one, just for the average listener, that, you know, this is syllables we hear in the ether, we don't know what it means until we need it, healthcare is a demand, a supply-only economy, you know, what is Medicare and what is Medicare Advantage? Sure. Um, Well, Medicare is our program of health insurance for elderly and disabled Americans uh, that started in uh, 1965 when President Johnson signed the Medicare and Medicaid amendments to the Social Security Act. And the program enrolls over 70 million people today. It's generally known for its fee-for-service payment approach for the majority of people who are enrolled in it. But uh, that's where Medicare Advantage comes in. Now, Medicare Advantage is the private option in Medicare where the program contracts with uh, private health insurance companies to administer the Medicare benefit on the agency's behalf. And in doing so, they are paid completely differently, obviously, than Uh, fee-for-service doctors or hospitals are in traditional Medicare. As a result, Medicare Advantage plans offer a wide range of benefits that are not uh, available in traditional Medicare and has historically done a much, much better job in both quality of care and member satisfaction than the traditional Medicare program has. And now we're on track for 40% of beneficiaries in the program uh, within the next uh, year or two. Okay. So basically, Medicare is the basic plan, like the freemium plan. And Medicare Advantage is you buy into like the silver package and you get better benefits. Not quite, but close. You know, in in traditional fee-for-service Medicare, you can go to basically any provider that you want, but you're going to pay or you're going to be responsible for 20% of the costs of any uh, encounter with a provider. And that's why you have what we call Medigap or Medicare Supplemental Insurance, which is designed to uh, plug the holes in traditional Medicare coverage and pay for a lot of that cost sharing that's expected in traditional Medicare's design. Medicare Advantage is a whole other thing where it's administered, as I said, by private insurance companies, but it's much, much more heavily regulated than the traditional uh, Medicare program is in that um, they have very, very specific quality measures. There's a a body of about 50 uh, quality measures that the plans are held to. They're paid entirely differently, as I mentioned earlier, uh, than you see doctors or hospitals um, paid in traditional Medicare. I suppose the one big difference that we should be aware of is that Medicare Advantage historically 
has enrolled a much higher proportion of lower income beneficiaries and especially racial and ethnic minorities um, are drawn to the program because in effect, in Medicare Advantage, you are trading access to providers in order to get cheaper coverage. So you're going to go into an HMO or a PPO and you generally are incentivized to stay within network uh, with these types of products to get maximum benefits and maximum coverage. If you go outside that network, then you can be 100% responsible for the costs of that visit or that encounter. So you get, in some respects, less access to care in Medicare Advantage, but in return, you get a big package of supplemental benefits like vision, hearing, dental, gym memberships, and things of that sort that many, many millions of beneficiaries really love the program for. I think I understand that now. Thank you very much for that okay, sure. explanation. You know, no, you, no, not at all. I mean, your, your focus is really on underserved communities and racial disparities in healthcare. Have you seen exactly. economically disadvantaged communities benefit from Medicare Advantage 101 versus those who may have to just be on regular Medicare? Well, I mean, absolutely. Now, having said all that, Medicare Advantage has had for the last five years that we've been tracking it a consistent problem in racial and ethnic disparities in care. This was the fifth consecutive year, as I mentioned, where we saw Black and Latino beneficiaries with, with lower quality ratings of care that they're receiving from the plans than they saw from uh, white beneficiaries. And I think that's just a really a reflection of the incredible inequities that are built into the American health system and that really have been laid bare uh, in this whole pandemic that we're all suffering through right now. This is really where you see the inequality and, in effect, the systemic racism that really defines uh, our healthcare system when we see Latino and Black uh, Americans dying at three to four times the rate of their population, of their representation in the population. That tells you unequivocally that, you know, there are rampant racial disparities in our healthcare system. And that is also reflected in Medicare Advantage and some of the, uh, the quality measures that uh, the program is known for. So for instance, you see far lower rates of assessing uh, body mass index or far lower rates of medication adherence among Black and Latino beneficiaries than you do among white beneficiaries. And a lot of that just has to do with, you know, just sort of intrinsic racism that we see among healthcare providers. Yeah. My work in advocacy over the past couple of years in young adult cancer really yielded these, I say the ebb tide. When the tide goes out, you really see all the crap on the beach. I've been saying that for years mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. on nearly every time on the show when I talk to people. And if the same woman in her 30s gets the same breast cancer and is treated at the same clinic, she's more likely to die or have metastatic disease if they're black. Just by it's like the Walking While Black documentary, it's like Cancer While Black sure. is an automatic yeah. predisposition for a poor outcome. Is there anything that has been concretely attributable to that outside? I mean, one might argue genetics or distrust of the system. How would institutional racism or disparity, unconscious disparities play into that? Well, you see it in everything from the rates in which pain medications are administered to black women 
during and after childbirth to how we treat uh, black and Latino cancer patients up and down the spectrum of virtually every measurement that we have, we see that our healthcare system does a pretty lousy job of caring for especially lower income racial and ethnic minorities. And that is, you know, obviously been what's defined our experience with COVID in America. And part of the reason why we're seeing such incredibly high mortality rates uh, in these two segments of the population is one, the fact that there just aren't nearly enough healthcare providers in traditionally lower income Black and Latino communities. They're what we call, and there's a federal designation for this that we rely on called a, a medically underserved area that measures the number of providers relative to the population. And in virtually every major urban area that we have, you see incredible rates of uh, medical underservice, of uh, woefully inadequate numbers of primary care physicians and their um, extenders in particular. And uh, generally speaking, you know, a, a pretty horrible uh, undercount of minority physicians serving populations that look like them. That's generally where you get the best results in uh, minority populations, especially among the elderly, is that when they're being served by Black or Latino doctors who really can exhibit some cultural competency in the way that uh, they're cared for, that's where we generally tend to see the best results in the rooting out and reduction of disparities in care. But, you know, we do very little in this country to incentivize doctors to practice and remain in medically underserved areas. We have this wonderful program in the country that almost nobody's ever heard of called the National Health Service Corps, which is run out of our Federal Department of Health and Human Services, which basically says to doctors, if you practice in these medically underserved areas, like in a federally qualified health center, uh, or a primary care clinic, for instance, we and you stay there for four to five years, we'll pay off all your med school debt. And that's been an incredibly powerful uh, tool to lure healthcare providers to the communities that need them the most. It's just been woefully and tragically underfunded since its inception. What do you attribute that to? It sounds, I mean, on the surface, it sounds, of course, I mean, I'm no expert in police brutality. I'm just an armchair listening to the news. But I'm, I'm getting a sense that when policing communities have a higher percentage of African-American police, those neighborhoods are better. I don't know what better means with the, with the white guy to voice I'm using, but you're articulating that that has a very similar impact if an African-American community is treated with African-American doctors. And yet there's an incentive to do so and it's not working. Well, it's. It's working. It's just been so underfunded and it's generally so small that it can't have the impact that it was uh, originally envisioned to have. But if it improves a health outcome, wouldn't that incentivize the system to look at cost benefit and accelerate the value of that? Of course. And, you know, that's certainly the case with, with the federally qualified health center program itself. I mean, the community health center program also came out of the same law that launched Medicare and Medicaid. And today we have thousands of these federally funded primary care clinics, and it's still not even close to being 
enough to meeting the need. It really is uh, a microcosm of our complete and utter failure to invest in and support our public health infrastructure more generally. I mean, just look at what's going on right now with COVID, with CDC, with, you know, the completely botched response to this virus and the fact that we are letting both providers and bug hunters at both the federal, state, and local levels to go without, you know, desperately needed equipment, PPE. You know, we haven't even really begun contact tracing in any real uh, measure compared to other industrialized countries. I mean, this has just been a complete failure of the federal government in every respect. And it really has shown that our decades of, of undermining and cutting funding for public health generally has really contributed to the jam that we're in right now. Back with our guests after the break. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So, John, shifting gears, I mean, it's tangential and adjacent to everything we're talking about is, you know, you've been working for the government for many, many years. I I love the you have a phenomenal quote that sounds like it could only come from you. The biggest impediment to more holistic care for complex, vulnerable patients has always been money. You know, you were appointed by Clinton to basically be the first assistant to the director of healthcare. I'm reading this verbatim financing at HFCA, which is now CMS. You know, you you have a perspective, a crow's nest, looking out at profit versus purpose and the entire economy of healthcare. Looking in your rearview mirror, can you see pros and cons? Can you point to one or two things that, oh my God, we actually did something right? Well, I mean, sure. I mean, Medicare Advantage and Medicaid you know, which CMS or my former uh, agency, the Healthcare Financing Administration, runs are two of the most resounding successes the government's ever engaged in. You know, both programs have their share of problems. But when you consider the fact that between those two programs, you're talking the biggest insurer on the planet, that's a very big deal. And that they play 
a really fundamental role in our healthcare system, both in financing and delivery of healthcare. Now, Medicare Advantage has worked at times better than others. Generally speaking, the program works really, really well in terms of accomplishing its goals and objectives. To be blunt, when Democrats are in office and they regulate the hell out of the program, I mean, the whole construct of Medicare Advantage, which we, in effect, built during the Clinton administration as the program was exploding in the early 90s, you know, really does provide the perfect framework for imposing all sorts of quality measures and and expectations of, of treatment and provider network adequacy and the like that really do provide a framework that if we wanted to, could really provide universal coverage. I mean, we saw a lot in the Democrats' uh, candidates' debates uh, earlier about Medicare for all. And Medicare for all is just a really dumb idea from a guy who used to run the program. You know, just doing traditional fee-for-service Medicare for all for everybody in America would literally set the country back 40 years in terms of the way that we pay for and administer healthcare. What is actually possible and what could really work to provide a uniquely American approach to universal coverage would be Medicare for all who want it. It was really the platform of Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg during the primaries. But that's actually a, a reasonably viable approach. You're never going to get Medicare for all through the Senate, no matter if Democrats retake the Senate or not. Medicare Advantage, however, is literally one of the most popular programs uh, in Congress. And it's got uh, every year uh, hundreds of congressmen and state and uh, senators that uh, sign an annual letter of support uh, for the program and to uh, to keep its rates up. And that I, I actually really think is the blueprint for getting us to about as close to universal coverage as possible. So, I mean, that has worked unequivocally. Medicaid where the hell would we be in the middle of this pandemic without Medicaid? And thank God for Obamacare, um, because the Medicaid expansion has done more to pick up the millions of Americans who've lost their employer-based job coverage during this recession. And now we're, you know, we're even really starting to see proposals uh, in Congress to automatically enroll people who are losing employer-sponsored coverage into Medicaid. And for the first time, we're really starting to see red states like Oklahoma. Oklahoma. I mean, God, just last week, Oklahoma expanded Medicaid. That's about as red as a red state gets. That wind is sweeping down the plain, John. Exactly. And it's like, I think people are even, you know, the, the Trumpiest maggotiest um, uh, red state governors uh, are really beginning to realize that, man, we're, we're killing ourselves by not taking this Medicaid expansion. I mean, the feds are going to pay full freight on this thing for the first 10 years. Uh, and we're basically paying for it anyway through our tax dollars going to blue states that already expanded Medicaid. So we might as well do it. And as a result, we've seen millions of new enrollees uh, in Medicaid and, um, uh, you know, a crisis made less worse 
by millions of folks losing employer-sponsored coverage and and then getting rapidly picked up by Medicaid instead if they're eligible. So, I, you know, I really do think as much as folks love to say, I want the government out of my health care, <laughs> folks, folks, you know, I just, I just literally crack up every time I hear that because we already do have a single payer in America, and that's Medicare. And we already do have a, uh, a program that covers over 72 million people, and that's Medicaid, and doing a pretty fine job of it in most states. You know, I wanted to also touch on what my world has been, which is the role of the consumer slash patient advocate, the modern day Ralph Naders who've really pushed for consumer influence and legislative influence and supported lobbyists like yourself to get things done based on the pressure of the vote. Would you look back over the last 30 years and, and opine somewhat that the power of the consumer as an advocate and the organizational nature of mobilizing basically Americans to push forward for things has moved the needle on X, Y, or Z? It has in some respects, but not in others. I mean, traditionally, you see pretty generally weak uh, advocacy around Medicaid because of the populations it serves. It serves an extremely low-income population and disabled, and then very low-income elderly people who are generally not politically active, if for no other reason than the fact that a lot of the folks on Medicaid are working multiple jobs and just don't have the time to uh, advocate for themselves. So there's that's on one hand. On the other hand, you have seen in Medicare Advantage incredibly powerful grassroots advocacy. And in fact, you see in Medicare Advantage a bit of what we call uh, here in Washington uh, astroturfing, which is when we put together sort of fake consumer organizations that will advocate for uh, a program or, or a policy. I mean, you see drug companies do this all the time. Uh, around certain therapeutic classes where they will get, you know, real patients to come together to advocate for something that's basically a pretty nakedly profiteering drug company kind of strategy. But, you know, for instance, then you look at a group like the Better Medicare Alliance, which was basically put together to lobby for Medicare Advantage. And that organization has been incredibly influential and, uh, and really commands a fair degree of influence here in Washington. The word intervention can be misconstrued quite often. And, you know, it was also like we talk about, like, uh, you know, drug addiction and Dr. Drew, like I grew up in the 90s, like this is all about MTV and interventions. Today, it means something very, very different because it could ideally have proven the model like peer-to-peer and access to care and community cancer centers getting more money, you can actually save the system a lot and provide so much cost benefit and productivity gains and back to work and less visits to the hospital. We've quantified this for so many years now. What are the interventions that you've seen? I keep going back to the National Health Service Corps. That sounds like a phenomenal way to create something, but it's underfunded. From the word intervention as a semantic as syllables, how do you interpret that today in modern healthcare? Well, an intervention can be uh, virtually anything. In, in the world I live in now, 
an intervention is uh, is a program that you stand up to counter the effects of social determinants of health. And that's sort of my new passion and focus with, you know, my retirement project in Nightingale Partners, which is our fund that invests in big social determinant of health interventions. I mean, the science is, and the research is very, very clear that by standing up programs to address social determinants of health, and, and let's just face it, social determinants of health are just four fancy words for poverty. Yeah. Okay. And all the research shows us that 60 to 80% of all healthcare expenditures in America can be attributed to social determinants of health, where you live, what you eat, what you drink, what you breathe, who you live with, condition of the housing that you're in, how much education you got or didn't get, what your income level is, all of those things are social determinants. And the research further shows us that when you stand up a program and you try to intervene with these social determinants, that you can generate incredible savings to the healthcare system just by doing some basic human things. So let me give you the extreme example, my favorite example. A couple of years ago, Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania, uh, one of the most celebrated rural health systems in our country, uh, found that they were spending $300,000 per patient per year on their uh, uncontrolled elderly diabetics. Okay. So they started a medically appropriate meal delivery service for, for a thousand of them. And within 14 months, they dropped the average cost of care for these patients to $48,000. And so net of the cost of the meals prepared and delivered, they saved $192,000 per patient per year just by feeding people, okay? That, for me as an investor now, is as good as it gets. That was a 35X ROI. And that's what this stuff is all about. We see study after study that shows that housing homeless patients ends up in an 80% reduction in their healthcare costs. We find that providing seniors and low-income mothers and uh, disabled people a community health worker to help them better navigate the system, get all of the social welfare benefits that they're entitled to, and, uh, you know, just simple things like getting guidance on how to eat right and take their medications properly. A community health worker will save, on average, $2,500 per patient per year just by having somebody to serve as an advocate and a guide uh, for really vulnerable and complex patients. So, Shirley, with that incredible perspective and the fact that there is evidence that some of these things work I'm optimistic, which is odd for me because I'm a cockeyed pessimist, but the New Yorker in me <laughs> is looking forward to seeing how these things might actually do something. Uh, John Gorman, founder of the Gorman Health Group, member of the board of directors of Henry Ford Health Systems Health Alliance Plan, chairman at Nightingale Partners, which invests in social determinants of health. John, you're a warrior, and I want to thank you for making things suck a whole lot less for the undeserved people who deserve better. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here.
That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.